Will you take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 37 and uh, bow to pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how your word um, challenges us and stretches us and loves us and comforts us all at the same time. And Lord, today we pray that you would speak by your spirit to our hearts. We open our lives to you. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I was an Old Testament major in seminary. And um, I love the stories of the way God worked with his chosen people before Jesus came, how he anticipated through his work, anticipated the Messiah, how way before Jesus came, even as far back as the Garden of Eden, God promised a rescuer for a people, for, in fact, for all people who would not and could not live as the holiness of God requires them to live. I love the fact that the lives of the Old Testament saints are so human and raw. Their imperfections are right out there like a marquee over their stories. You see, in the Old Covenant, the agreement between God and his people, God is always the one who is faithful to the covenant, while people always make a mess. God never goes back on his word, regardless of how foolish and fickle and unfaithful are his servants. And as Christians, we read the Old Testament through the New. We understand the Old Covenant through the New Covenant, the Gospel. We understand the failures of Old Testament characters contrasted to the perfect righteousness and complete faithfulness of Jesus. The Gospel is our filter. And that's the only way you can make sense of God's graceful work with feeble, faulty, fickle strugglers in the Old Testament, strugglers who are a lot like us. We're going to start today what will likely be a 10-week series on the life of the Old Testament character, Joseph. Genesis 37 to 50, there's a lot of his story that we know from Sunday school and, and the Sunday school version is pretty sanitized and naive. The Sunday school story overlooks Joseph's struggles and temptations and his faults. The Sunday school version makes Joseph the hero of his story. But I think the Sunday school version misses the real intent of Scripture. In the Joseph story, Joseph is noble, but God is the hero of the story. Really, Joseph's story is God's story, how God rescues and redeems his people. We're going to see that all the way through as we study in this series. Joseph is the major human character in Genesis 37. And it's so amazing, frankly, that any man would be given so many chapters of Genesis dedicated to his story. Genesis 37 all the way to 50. But the story is about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to Joseph. Joseph, while amazingly upright and noble, is still a frail, struggling human being. Most of his life is amazingly praiseworthy and commendable, but he still has his faults. And the real hero of the Bible 
is always God himself. It's God who keeps his promises and it's God who rescues and redeems this man and lifts Joseph to greatness. And that's impressive because most of the time Joseph cooperates fully with God, but he's not perfect. Joseph's real story shows him as mostly admirable, but with struggles just like every one of us. He comes from severe family dysfunction, family rivalry and jealousy. Rivalry and jealousy you wouldn't believe. And only late in life does Joseph figure out how to deal with his family's wounds and flaws. Well, Joseph begins life born to a very wealthy herder and shepherd. Jacob is his name. And, Jacob's, uh, and jo Joseph starts out quite spoiled and prideful and arrogant. He's a teenager in a not nice family. There's severe family dysfunction. Jacob, the dad, raised a large family but was a careless dad, gave little guidance to his children. Sexually, Joseph's family is a mess. His father, Jacob, had two wives, one that he loved and one he was tricked into marrying, and each of the wives brought servant girls into the marriage, and Jacob bedded them all, had children by them all. Joseph's brothers are not nice men. There's a story of incest in the earlier chapters. One of Joseph's brothers, Reuben, with one of the mother's servant girls who was also intimate with dad. Another brother, Judah, has a dalliance with a woman he thinks is a prostitute who actually he discovers later is his own daughter-in-law. They are not nice men. And Joseph's relationship with his brothers is filled with resentment and bitterness and, and jealousy and even hatred. Maybe naively but carelessly, teenage Joseph poured gasoline on already smoldering family tensions and rivalries. Joseph is the recognizable favorite of his father. He's the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And as a young man, Joseph relishes it and plays it and, and turns his brother's jealousy into murderous hatred. The conflict becomes, no kidding, abusive. There will be a lot of family dysfunction for Joseph to work through in later life. And when you read the story in its bold detail, you've got to admit that Joseph as a teen didn't help family relationships much. He was a spoiled brat. Genesis 37 starts his story. And it continues all the way to Genesis 50, the end of the book. That's amazing press. Very few Bible characters get 13 long chapters of print. And he's worth the study. The ins and out of outs of his life are just fascinating. We can learn about God's grace and about how to handle our human struggles uh, and, and how to deal with family dysfunction. All of that is just huge in Joseph's story. Perhaps the biggest lesson from Joseph's life is that God blesses this thing called forgiveness. 
God forgives. God's grace is the foundation for all of God's relationships with people. And when you know God and pursue God, you've got to become like Him in His grace and forgiveness. So right even before we dig into Joseph's story, I'm going to ask you, is there someone you don't know how to forgive? Is there a person in your life who has disappointed you or misused you or abused you and you're holding on to that offense? It's a grudge that whenever you think about it, it just burns inside of you. You're holding on to resentment and bitterness. You know that's not like Jesus. You know that's not like the God of grace and mercy, but it's like you. The story of Joseph is going to be good for you. So Joseph is the son of Jacob, the man whose name God changed to Israel. Israel means he struggles with God. Wow, did he. What a name for a man and what a name for the nation that he spawned. Jacob had two wives. Uh, the one Jacob was tricked into marrying, Leah, gave him six sons. The wife he loved, Rachel, was barren for many years and finally bore him two sons. Jacob also had children by the two servant girls, two sons from each woman. And, by, uh, and Joseph was the oldest son of Rachel, the favorite wife the favorite son of the favorite wife. There was jealousy and rivalry between the women and there was worse bitter rivalry between the sons. And the other brothers, half-brothers actually, came to hate Joseph. It says it three times in Genesis 37. As the favorite son of the favorite wife, Jacob had given Joseph a special coat. Early Bible translations suggest it was a coat of many colors. But the Hebrew word here is a mystery, never used anywhere else in Scripture. And most scholars think it simply referred to something elaborate and very recognizable. The NIV says richly ornamented. One of the other translations says, suggests that it was something of, with long sleeves. Probably was colorful, likely did have long sleeves. Remember now, the family were shepherds. Ancient stone relief carvings always show Semitic shepherds dressed in sleeveless mid-thigh tunics. Dirty, messy work they did, and you dressed practically in clothes that you didn't care if they got dusty and dirty and messy. But Joseph had this special coat. It may well have been colorful. It may well have had fancy stitchery and designs. It was likely long and likely had sleeves. But it told you that of all the 12 sons, who the special one was, who the favorite one was. And Joseph wore it everywhere, and the brothers hated it. That likely also means that when the brothers are out working the flocks, doing the dirty work, Joseph took the easier, lighter duty. Not exactly helpful if your brothers resent you. 
they did have reason. Joseph also had strange nighttime dreams. The text doesn't say so, but I think it's reasonable that to assume that those dreams were from God, hinting to Joseph of his future greatness. In one, Joseph and his brothers are bundling sheaves of grain, and all the brothers' sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. And Joseph, had he been wiser, he would have kept that dream to himself, but he insisted on telling his brothers all about it and its implications. Someday you will bow down to me. Indeed, those dreams will come true. In fact, not only his family will bow down to him, not knowing it, they will bow down and show him homage, but a whole nation, a region of the world will bow one day at Joseph's feet. In another dream, the sun and the moon and, the, and 11 stars are all bowing down to him. And he insists on telling this dream again. Dad and mom and all 11 brothers will someday bow down. And even his father scolded him for coming out with that story. So at 17 years of age, Joseph is the favorite, a bit spoiled, um, plenty arrogant, cocky, uh, conceited. He certainly wasn't figuring out how to keep his thoughts to himself. Three times in these early verses of Genesis 37, it says his brothers hated him. Verse 11 says they were seething, they had seething jealousy of him. And I'd add, not without cause. Oh, the other thing we might miss is that verse 2 suggests that he was also a tattletale, snitching on the brothers who were regularly up to no good. Now, these brothers were not godly guys, and it may be a good thing that Joseph was informing dad, but if there was jealousy and competition, you can multiply the resentment when they knew that Joseph told on them certainly dad's favorite being dad's favorite set him up to be hated set the family up for ugly rivalry and resentment but whether proudly or naively joseph's words didn't help the situation the rest of the chapter gets ugly uglier here is domestic abuse in all its viciousness there's one day in Joseph's life when all the hatred and rivalry and jealousy and bitterness comes to a head, and it's bad. And there's the kind of abuse in a family, and when there's this kind of abuse in a family, it turns kids into criminals. It results in mental problems. It often turns sweet kids rageful, pushes them over the edge and out of control. That's the brothers. And here's what we're going to see. Somehow, God got a hold of Joseph's mind and heart and attitudes and the ugly abuse that might have crippled Joseph for the rest of his life set him on another path of growth and greatness and puts Joseph's name in the hall of faith listed in Hebrews 11. So what was that ugly day like? Well, the brothers are out tending sheep. Shepherds, you know, would travel wherever the sheep could find good pasture, and they ranged for miles and miles to find grass and water for their flocks. They've headed for a place called Shechem, 
the city of Hebron is there today. Father Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers, but they're not where they're supposed to be. What are they up to this time? And Joseph is wandering around the fields, hunting for his brothers, and a stranger asks him, what are you looking for? My brothers, he says. They're grazing the flock somewhere around here. No, the stranger said, they moved on from here. I heard them say they were going up to Dothan. That was about 13 miles distance. So there went Joseph, dressed in that special, colorful, embroidered robe. And as he neared Dothan, the brothers saw him coming. You had to know who it was. There was nothing like that coat that he wore. And verse 18 says that they hatched a plan to kill him. We hate him. We can't stand him. He'll likely rat us out again. Let's get rid of him. We'll kill him and throw his body into a cistern, a, a dry well. And then, then we'll say he was attacked and eaten by a wild animal. Then we'll see what happens to all of his fancy dreams. Reuben, the oldest, heard them say that and said, no, that's too bloody. Don't kill him. Just toss him in the cistern. He'll never be able to escape out of there. And the text says that Reuben had in mind that he would come back later and rescue him and bring him home safe to dad. So they took his robe and gang-tackled him and threw him in the cistern, this dried-out water storage hole in the ground. And then without any concern for what they had plotted or what they'd done, they, they sit down to eat a meal as a caravan of Ishmaelite traders winds its way past them on the road. And Judah now, the fourth oldest of the, of the 12, says, hey, these Ishmaelites trade in slaves. Don't kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. After all, he is our brother. Don't kill him. Sell him, which they do. And they sell him cheap. Same price we know for a handicapped slave. And in chains, Joseph goes with the Ishmaelites down to Egypt. The brothers soak that beautiful embroidered coat in sheep blood and take it home to Jacob with the story that they just found it that way. And Jacob was ripped with grief for his favorite son, who he believed had been torn apart and eaten by a ferocious wild beast. His family was not able to console him, and Jacob grieved for years for Joseph, most of the rest of his life. Well, that's Genesis 37. Joseph has a hard life ahead of him, I'll tell you. But let me clue you, God is going to bless him. I don't know if it was trapped in that dry cistern, wondering if his brothers would slit his throat that Joseph first trusted God. I don't know if it was being dragged down to Egypt in chains that Joseph first said, God, I need you. My life is a mess. Can you really do something with my life? 
but because God is the hero and because God is going to work in his life, all the ugliness that has been done to Joseph is going to work together to make Joseph's dreams become reality and make him great and take him even beyond his most fanciful dreams. At the end of the story, we'll see the amazing sweetness God has in mind for this young man. And we'll see how God will use him in the story of salvation and redemption, redemption for the people of Israel. We're not yet to the end of the story, and it's probably going to take us 10 sermons to get there. But it's an amazing story in which God is going to take all of the ugliness that happens to Joseph and use it to bless him and to work the most amazing redemption and blessing for God's people. Let me just now, on the basis of Genesis 37, draw three important implications and applications for your life and mine. First, let's notice how amazingly honest and real the scripture is. Family messes are nothing new. Dysfunctional families create troubled kids. Can I be so bold as to say Father Jacob across his lifetime made a bunch of real bad decisions and made a bunch of messes and many of those had to do with the way he lied and deceived in his own family, the one he was born into. His mother showed him how to cheat and lie. And you can look at Jacob's marriage, his marriages, his sexuality, and see that he's planting seeds that are going to bear fruit in family dysfunction and family messes for most of his kids. Jacob is not a great dad. So Joseph came from a sick family. His brothers tried to kill him and instead sold him as a slave. And I want to say to you, friend, it may be that you grew up in a mess. It may be that your family was full of jealousy and resentment and hatred. The Bible tells it like it is. It doesn't sugarcoat a horrible story. But here's what I want you to know. If you will give your life to the Lord, He can take all the pain and all the injury in all the mess, and make something wonderful out of it. My own mom came from a hard-drinking, hard-living home. And the dysfunction that had gone on for generations was her struggle. Her dad, my grandpa, get this, had his own dad, my great-grandfather, one day come to borrow my grandfather's Model A Ford. He was so proud of his shiny new Model A. He'd earned enough money working the railroad in Wyoming to buy it new. My great-grandfather stole it and ran off to Montana. And my grandpa, Russell, never saw his car again. And because my great-grandparents were church-going folks, that turned my grandpa into an angry church-hating partier. He had no idea how to raise a healthy family. 
My mom was yelled at and screamed at and knocked around and never knew from day to day what life would be. My mom was one day invited by a lady down the block to go to Sunday school. And when she asked my grandmother if she could go, Grandma thought a moment and said, yeah, Sunday school might be good for a naughty little girl like you. And in that Sunday school, my mom found love from some sweet Sunday school teachers. And a group of older widow ladies invited her to sit with them in church. And that day she gave her life to Jesus. And then those older ladies, through their own Bible study, discipled my mom. After high school, my dad kind of rescued my mom from that angry home. And it was my dad who showed my mom how to love a family and how to cherish children. And I'll tell you, friend, it was a dad and mom who led me to Jesus. And through them, God has worked in my life. And it's largely because of the blessing that came when my mom gave her life to Jesus. Oh, by the way, after my mom accepted the Lord, the change in her life was so dramatic that my grandparents, months later, also came to Jesus. Mom gave her life to the Lord, and it broke the generational curse. And God can do that for you, too. Second, I want you to notice that God gave Joseph a hint of the greatness that was ahead for him. For him, it was in dreams and Joseph's interpretation of how he would be honored by his father and brothers was honestly way short of the amazing things God intended for his life. If you know the rest of the story that will come to soon, in an amazing set of events, God takes Joseph and makes him vizier of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And when times get desperate, Joseph sees God use him to save the whole region from famine. Yes, even his messed up family. Doesn't that remind you of a Bible verse from 1 Corinthians 2? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Joseph's dreams were big. God's plans were far bigger. And I want you to know that that's possible for you. God's got amazing things planned for me and you. Here's another application. This story is kind of a downer, isn't it? The chapter 37. Unless you know the rest of the story, what God is going to do with Joseph's life, it's a downer. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals, though, for just a few moments. He went from being dad's favorite with special clothes that told everyone how favorite he was to a bit of mild frustration with his brothers. They're not where they're supposed to be. What are they up to this time? To seeing his brothers and being wrestled to the ground and stripped of his coat of honor and knowing they're going to kill him. Thrown into a dry cistern like the inside of a jug from which he might never escape and then pulled out of that hole only to be sold to slavers who put him in chains and dragged him off 
to a foreign and strange land. That was a bad day. A real bad day. Imagine his feelings. Imagine the humili humiliation. Imagine the feelings of abuse. Imagine the fear. This is family dysfunction and family abuse. But here's what I want to tell you. God has a plan that will take even the ugliest of this story and use it to refine Joseph's character, to make him great and to build him into the man that God will use powerfully and through him, God will bring rescue and redemption and salvation to many people and even to the brothers who abused him. God does excellent work with horrible stories. And in fact, God is even going to bless Joseph's horrible brothers. When Joseph lets God refine his attitudes and shape his character, great things begin to happen. Ugly stuff takes on an amazing purpose in the plan of God. Reminds me of another New Testament verse, doesn't it you? Actually several of them, but the one that pops into my mind is Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Doesn't say all things are good. Everything's not good. Family abuse is not good. Cancer is not good. But let me tell you, in every event of life, God has a plan and the enemy of your soul, Satan, has a plan. And when you know the Lord and love the Lord, what matters is not where the trouble comes from. What matters is who you're looking to, who your faith is in, who you give opportunity to work with your struggles. There's a lot of ugly stuff in life. But hear this, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And wouldn't you like to trust a God like that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that this story is so raw and real. I thank you that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the hard stories of life. I thank you that there's hope. There's hope for those who struggle like Joseph struggled like many of us struggle, there's hope as we give our lives to you. I thank you, God, that you're the giver of grace, that you're the extender of mercy, that you redeem and restore, that you capture troubled lives and turn them into blessing. We want that for ourselves and for all who worship with us and hear this message today. Oh, Jesus, do your work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.